0: I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Bruce Smith, CEO and founder of Hydro. Hydro's the leading connected rower, bringing the on-water experience of rowing live to consumers home. A lifelong rower and former U.S. national team rowing coach, Bruce isn't just another founder in for the exit. With a passion for the mental and physical benefits of rowing, as well as the connection and community it creates, Bruce launched Hydro to empower consumers to live healthier, enhanced lives through the shared experience of rowing. Bruce Smith, welcome into the corner office. Thank you very very much for having me it's fun to be here ah great to have you here and you know as we spoke a couple of months back huge fan of rowing Uh, one of my daughters got into that when she was in uh, junior high high school and did it all the way through college and um, i've been one of those parents at the sideline of mini regattas over the last eight nine years and uh what a wonderful sport and i know you've been doing it for a long time too and We'll get to that. I'm sure you didn't start as, a, as an infant, but uh, we like to kind of start at the beginning, Bruce, and tell us a little bit about your early family life, you know, where you grew up, what mom and dad did, and, you know, what were some of the things that inspired you as a kid?
1: Yeah, uh, way back in the Wayback Machine, um, I'm Canadian, and I grew up in New Brunswick in Canada, which is really, it is uh, far, far away from here. Yeah. Um, I'm in Boston today, but it's, you know, it's like a an eight-hour drive, but it really is a um, different world. It's a tiny province right. uh, in terms of population, and it's really it's actually hard to get there. And uh, I grew up in a little college town uh, called Fredericton, and it's just a, a really great place to grow up, you know, where there was a ton of opportunity for somebody. Um, I was a pretty busy kid and um, just lots of stuff that I could get up to without getting into uh, too much trouble, <laughs> uh, you know, depending on who you talk to. What did mom and dad do? Uh, My dad was a lawyer Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, a legal eagle and ended up, uh, he ended his career as a, you know, teaching law at the University of New Brunswick and writing several books on professional conduct. And my mom uh, was a pharmacist and uh, they were both, you know, busy professionals when I was growing up. So I had lots of free time where I really could get into some some pretty good trouble. (laughs) Brothers and sisters? Yeah, two older brothers, so I was I was spoiled. Uh, they were a lot older than me; they were about ten years older than I was, and so I was the spoiled youngest child by by a wide margin. How was your How were your school days? Did you uh, enjoy school in the early elementary? Oh, school was just torture. I I, <laughs> I, uh, I read an enormous number of books. You know, when I was ten, I finished David Copperfield, and I you know I I judged a book uh, not so much by its quality, but by its volume. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, I'd have two or $3 to spend at the bookstore or four bucks and I would buy the thickest books I could buy. So, (laughs) uh, most value out of it. I I did. It was high, high value. And it happened to be Cigna classics, you know? So, um, I had kind of an extraordinary, like reading career. And, um, you know, we had a lot of books around the house. So I, I entertained myself reading a lot, but I, I did not enjoy school.
0: Did you have a favorite genre that you read as a kid? Was it
1: more You know, different? like Dickens was kind of my like go-to. Um, I really love uh, those long convoluted sentences. And um, and then it kind of went from there. And I got into Wilkie Collins and Dorothy Parker and, you know, Taylor Caldwell. Like anything, completely omnivorous. Anything that you could read, I would read. Love it. Love it.
0: And what about other activities? Did, did, did sports become a major part of... Uh, what you did as a
1: kid or that come a uh, little bit later? My family was kind of of the opinion that sports were, you know, sort of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And um, I played the piano. I'm, my, my original career, I was going to be a professional pianist. And oh, one of the yeah. aspects of growing up in a small town, um, you know, it's a pretty shallow pool. So it was easy to be the, the best piano player. <laughs> right. um, so I, I played a lot. Like I really, and I still play a lot. I love it. What, love what, what age did you start learning? I started when I was five, you oh know, my gosh. Wow. uh, and, uh, yeah, I had this amazing German teacher, Mrs. Lotz. Um, she gave me a little, uh, mint candy at the end of every lesson, even though I didn't practice, but like the first three or four years, my parents really had to like crack the whip. And then after that, I, I, I was desperate to play. So I played two or three hours a day and, um, I really did, you know, I had some professional aspirations and, and I think lucky for me, um, I actually, I moved out of my parents' house when I was in, um, in grade 12. So I was living by myself and I didn't have a piano to practice on. So I ended up, you know, accompanying some friends for their, um, y- you know, for their auditions for college, but I didn't actually, and I prepared a couple pieces for audition, but I ended up switching to English, which was a much, much wiser choice for me. Cause I'm just, you know, I, I worked hard and I like piano, but I'm not like, um, I, w- I was going to be, you know, if I was lucky, I'd end up teaching, you know, uh, kids like me in some small town, and not right, being, you right. know, on the stage at Carnegie Hall. Right. Well, you are a founder, and, and we'll get to that in a minute.
0: But um, any entrepreneurial things that you did as a kid—was there, you know, that that
1: instinct come early to you? It did. I was. I think my first business was when I was twelve. I I made uh, these brass candlesticks that oh. uh you could hang on the wall and i my big order was to a local church they bought 12 of them for <laughs> uh 25 a piece and i thought i was rich beyond wow yeah it was wow. great it was did really you great. actually make them the yeah thing? no no, i had to make them i, I yeah. bought a sheet of brass and some brass tubing and i welded it together and i had no idea what i was doing but it, it kind of sort of worked and there was a very nice lady there who thought that i was cute and so she You know i was kind enough to be my patron and i went on from there to paint houses i started painting houses when i was you know 13 or 14 years old um and i just you know i I worked like a dog and and loved working and loved having my own money to spend and um as soon as i could drive i was out the door and uh you know worked from dawn till dusk uh you know whenever i was out of school
0: what were some of the things uh growing up that inspired you you know maybe things that you learned from mom and dad or maybe your piano teacher or you know some of the entrepreneurial things you've got any any kind of key lessons there
1: i think that um i don't know if i learned this then because i think that memory is a funny thing but the uh there there is beauty everywhere you just have to um find the right frame and the right resonance and you know whether it's a piece of jazz or a really formal piece you know like bach or mendelssohn or whatever it is That like it's finding the resonance and uh same you know with like a when you're painting a house and finding you know the the right rhythm for it um that everything has that rhythm you just got to look for it and if you can look for it then you can really understand things at a pretty deep level and, and get some real, um, I don't know, like velocity and also some real joy out of whatever you're doing. It does, doesn't matter what it is. You just got to figure out what that resonance is. Love it. Love it.
0: Now you went to McGill, great, uh, Canadian university, great overall university. Was it kind of a foregone conclusion that you'd go to school? You know, did your no. older brothers? No. No. No L- yeah.
1: Literally. The- <laughs> so I can't believe my luck. I just can't. Uh, I hated school, I skipped a lot of school, I happened to test really well, Um, and uh, I went into the, you know, the guidance counselor's office in Fredericton High School in like, I don't know, like April or something, and all my friends were applying to all these schools, and I had, I figured like, oh, I guess, but I, you know, I live, I I didn't live with anybody, I lived by myself, so nobody was really directing me, and there was one school that had a single page application and no essay requirement, and it was the (laughs) bill, And so that was the one school that I applied to. And so I literally like that was the only place I applied. And I was just super lucky that they accepted me. And um, I think I I think a couple of teachers at my school might have uh, behind the scenes done a little bit of work. But I was oblivious to all of that and uh, just super, super, super lucky. And I loved Miguel. It was just a fantastic education. Really enjoyed it. You found it, found a joy in in going to school once you got to university. So I went to school first semester. I got a 178 GPA um, on a (laughs) 4.3 scale. I think I went to like maybe 10 or 15% of my classes. Um, I did that for the first whole year. I worked really hard. I had a really successful um, summer painting. And I made a ton of money and my brother and I decided like, hey, let's not uh, do regular stuff. Let's go to Europe. So I went to Europe for four months with my brother (laughs) during the first semester of what was supposed to be my second year. And um, when I came back from that trip, I realized that school was awesome. And my next semester, like the the next uh, quarter in school, I got a 3.9 GPA. Wow. I I didn't look back. I just uh, some, some switch, some kind of maturity or something. Kicked over in my Into head, the international travel,
0: Bruce. I mean, that might have been part of it. Right. Kind of It really,
1: you know, we went to every museum, every church in Europe, and um, we just, you know, we followed all the guidebooks and something I just I realized that I really, really enjoyed uh, the process of learning and and also that English was like this key that could unlock understanding about all the things that I thought were beautiful in the world. So, yeah, I got I got really excited about it. And then you couldn't get me out of school. I was in school forever. <laughs> Came back with a new uh new yeah. insurgent.
0: So you discovered crew at McGill or, or did you yep. return yeah. before? All right. So how did that come? You know, out
1: yeah, my first year I didn't do anything. I just, you know, I, I uh became very familiar with the bars in Montreal. And <laughs> uh and there are quite but, a few. <laughs> yeah, they're a great place actually. And um, you know, inexpensive beers on Tuesday nights. Uh yeah. and uh then I I was on the rowing machine a lot in the gym and Mm the, um, you know, the president of McGill crew came over and said like, Hey, you should, you should come out for crew. And so I did.
0: Had you you done the rowing machine before? Was that
1: part of your work? No, just just It
0: looks like an interest machine. Let's see if we can just do something on that.
1: It was just, it was like physically challenging. And, um, and I would sit on it. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know like literally no idea. I just sat down and started rowing. And I, but I did it like, you know, same time same day you know every day of the week and so this guy came over and said like hey you should actually come out and try rowing and that was that and then i got very involved with the crew program there and became president of the club and uh, you know tried really hard to make the canadian national team um a bunch of the people that i started rowing with at mcgill did go on to the olympics for canada and a couple of them actually have gold medals from the olympics i was not that good like i tried and tried but i just i, I didn't make the team i didn't even really come close and, uh, ended up, um, a with a chip on my shoulder and, uh, be, uh, coaching, you know, because yeah. that, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't quite shake it, but I, I was not good enough to make the team myself. So I started, uh, you know, trying to teach people how to do it and, and got really involved with coaching and really, really enjoyed that. That's awesome. So, so did you coach club teams locally there
0: in Montreal? Did you coach at McGill or yeah. how did your coaching start?
1: I did a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, I was going to school, uh, more or less full time and I was rowing like more or less full time. And then I was working to, to support myself. I, you know, I, uh, um, Canada is the kind of place where you can pay your way through school. And I, I did. And, um, so I was super, super busy. And then I started, you know, kind of nibbling away at coaching a little bit and I moved to Chicago, uh, mm. with a, you know, my girlfriend at the time. And, um, thought that I would it was 1995, which is a long time ago now, but I, I really thought I would go to Chicago, I'd make some money, I'd train really hard, I'd be very focused and I would sneak onto the Canadian national team in 1997 after everybody <laughs> retired, you know because after it. the Olympics everybody quits. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got there and then um, you know I saw an ad for coaching and I started I got involved like kind of deeply in coaching. and so I coached a club program and I coached mm. a high school program, Jesuit School in one of the uh, Chicago suburbs, uh, Loyola Academy. And then I ended up really kind of, um, you know, doing entrepreneurial things, but also coaching a lot. And so I coached this high school program and, and built a couple of boat houses on the Chicago River. And uh, with, you know, with a lot, obviously a lot of help, not just me, but um, it became something that I, you know, I really dug into pretty hard. And that coaching thread was always kind of a side gate, but I didn't, I kept going and going and going. And I ended up coaching at you know, the collegiate level at Dartmouth for a couple of years. And then I ended up um, earning a spot on the U.S. national team through the trial system. And I've been to the world championships 10 times uh, for the yeah.
0: U.S. Now, when did you actually coach at Dartmouth? When, what years were Uh
1: It was like 2003, 2004. Yeah. Yeah. And again, some, you know, some really nice people. Um, and we had uh, left Chicago at that point. I had a couple kids and we, uh, we moved to the country and it was, you know, just a 10 minute drive from Dartmouth. And I really thought that I was going to retire from coaching. And I literally, like the week I arrived in Vermont, I got a phone call from somebody who I didn't know. And they were like, Hey, you know, we need an assistant coach. Somebody brought up your name. And then I, I got sucked back into the coaching world. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> couldn't, yeah. couldn't get out tried and oh, tried. I, it, I
0: it. think I mentioned this when we spoke, you know, one of my daughters did row and, and she was uh, captain of the, of the women's team at, at Dartmouth in the end. And Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I know it's a small yeah, world. Yeah. We well, live 14, in a... 15 years later, I mean, it was right. quite a right. few years after you yeah. were there, but, but, uh, oh gosh, I just love the sport. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about rowing only because I'm a, I'm a relatively new person to it. I do row. I, I love going to the gym. Like you, when I first got on the machine, I had no idea what I was doing. And then of course, as I yep. got into the sport, it's just such a great workout. What, 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 for you, you know, in those early days, what, what really attracted you to the sport? I know that, you know, you got kind of that, that walk on common and, and come with us, but what, what did you like most about it? Can you remember back when
1: you yeah. first started rowing? I've thought about this a little bit, I think. Uh, so in retrospect, um, I can say that uh, playing the piano, compulsive reading, rowing—like th- those things—they uh, they share a common characteristic, mm. uh, especially playing the piano. Um, but it's it's this thing where you get to repeat something and try to make it perfect again and again and again. And so there was something about the full mind-body engagement around that. It's mm. like um, it's like a relief, you know. You get to uh, take a break from the freneticism or the, you know, the constant, uh, change and shift. And you get to just really focus in and focus your entire body. Cause you're using all of the muscles in your body pretty much. And you get to use your entire brain because it takes a lot of energy to, to move in the right way and to be able to try again and again and again and again, and make something perfect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to chase that perfection, I think is what really drove me. And it is, it's just a very satisfying feeling. I describe it, um, it's like scratching an itch on the inside of your belly that you didn't <laughs> even know you had, you know, but that. once you start to scratch it, it feels really good. And, and how many other exercises allow you to a pursue that, like one perfect stroke and B, um, you know, really do turn on your psoas and people don't know what they, they don't even know that they have a psoas probably. but. It's one of the very few exercises that does engage all of the muscles around your core, your legs, your back, your arms, and turning them all on at once is, um, it requires a larger electrical impulse from your brain than maybe any other activity other than like throwing a punch or something like that, you know, if you really throw a punch up from the ground. But it's, uh, it's, it's really, really compelling once you start to dig in. And rowers don't have language around that. They talk about the sunrise and the water, but I think that's what um, has made rowing survive despite all of the ups and downs in the sport. Right, right, fabulous. And um, with regards to you know kind of
0: the coaching part of it, did, did you find that, again, was that part of the experience, you know, being able to share that and help others improve? I mean, you, you, you've, you've coached more than you've obviously, and we're gonna talk about hydro in a minute, but you've coached for a lot longer than obviously you've been a, a CEO. What, what kind of joy and experience did you get through that?
1: Coaching is, um, I don't know if this is fair or not, but I think like coaching and CEOing and uh, being an artist are very similar endeavors. You've got uh, some, you've got a medium. And in the case of coaching, your medium is a boat and water and people. The people is the hard part, obviously. Mm. And you're trying to make, again, this like very beautiful thing. This the most beautiful you know, 240 stroke experience that you can have that gets you from point A to point B within the boundaries of this medium in the most perfect way that you can. And that pursuit of perfection, I think is so much, it's so much fun to do that with other people. And especially at the national team level, because it is everybody's maximum. Um, they, you know, there, there's nothing you won't do to try and make it perfect. And that includes, you know, the physical fitness part of it, but mostly it's the concentration and the mind-body connection, and dealing with the natural world. And it's just, it's a, it's an incredibly rich experience. And when you really dig into that, there, it's, it's incomparable. You know, it's really, it's, it's really, it's, it's so special and such a privilege to be able to do. And and uh, truthfully, since I started the company, I haven't been able to coach it all, and it's one of the one of the big regrets about starting this company is that it's taking yeah, me out of the yeah. coaching role. Well, you're but, coaching your team, right? I mean, that's, I know <laughs> no, and, and, and that's, that's why I say CEOing and coaching are right.
0: really
1: yeah. uh, super similar. Yeah.
0: You know, I remember when, when we were novice parents, you know, and coming to our first matches and having just no idea what the sport was about. And, you know, you, you kind of struggle while you're at the side of the river and trying to see, you know, where are they and how soon will they come and all that. And and I remember a, a, probably two or three year ahead of us, parents said, well, you've got to read Boys in the Boat, right? Oh, yeah. And that was kind of the mandatory, and most parents yeah. read it. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget how much of an impact that had on me in drilling, really trying to understand kind of the real psychology of what it takes to be a good rower and that, right. and that focus, that concentration, that teamwork, you know, the whole concept of rowing in the same direction, right? We use it as, a, as an idiom. But, um, you know, it, it was such an amazing story. And... I, I, you know, I wonder as you've gone through those years of coaching, ha, have you seen a lot of real personal development? Do you see people that maybe get into the sport and think, oh, man, I'm going to do this or whatever, but then kind of it kind of takes over them and they become, you know, kind of a different person? I, I you know, I'd love to hear, you know, any stories about that.
1: Yeah, the, the most amazing thing. So coaching at Loyola Academy, so, you know, it's a suburb of Chicago, uh, Wilmette, and You've got these teenage boys, and so the parents have uh, basically relinquished all hope. Yeah, uh, dropped them off, right? <laughs> you no, know, they're like, okay. <laughs> and so these kids, who you know, won't get up, won't do their chores, won't won't do their schoolwork. Right. Um, you know, are disrespectful, thoughtless, selfish creatures, yeah. and uh, they're just that. You know, they're at the hopefully the nadir of their you know human development, and they find this sport, and all of a sudden the parents will come up to you you know a month or two into the experience and they'll say like hey what did you do with my kid because they're all of a sudden they're like badgering me to get up at five in the morning to get them to practice on time because yeah. they know if they're late their seven teammates are going to be paying the price and they just they will not do it and they have suddenly become yeah. altruistic hard-working focused they come home they eat right they uh, get their homework done. They know. go to bed early. Yeah. No, no. And and the, the parents are just left scratching their heads. Like yeah. what what uh, what drug are you using? Have you got some kind of mind? What, what kind of incentives are you yeah. providing? Them? I know. It's really, it's really crazy. And rowing does that to people. Um, I think, you know, every human being is born alone. Um, and we just crave that kind of connection, and there are very few opportunities where you achieve a state of flow with another group of people Mm -hmm. as quickly as you can rowing. And that was actually one of the reasons we started Hydro. We wanted to deliver, deliver that to people's homes, not, you know, not force them to go down to the boathouse at five in the morning and figure out how to row, but actually be able to get some of that, um, directly into their life. But it's, it is unique. Um, I think all sports ultimately aim at that flow and the best teams all have that experience. But most teams, you know, because they're uh, different parts and different positions and you're, gonna, you're looking at 10 or 20,000 hours before you get there with rowing, you get there almost instantly because it's your whole body and you're doing this uh, rhythmic motion. And it really does. It's um, it's connective in a way that very few things are and i think that's the that's the magic that drives that transformation that people experience it's really it's really cool to be around fabulous fabulous. and you know it's a for for those of
0: our listeners that have been in a boat whether it's a single or you know a four or or an eight they're very you know light (laughs) how Uh should i say And, and you know kind of unstable i mean you have to figure out how to get balanced real quickly And if you're not doing that with the rest of the folks and figuring that out quickly, it, it, you know, you, you, you learn quick, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the way it goes or, or you don't like it at all, I suppose,
1: or you're out. Yeah, no, no. And, and the, um, the magic in being in an eight person or a four person shell with one or each, you only have half of the solution. That's right. (laughs) You you need the other person to also do their work really well, or just, or you're both in the water. And, yeah, that's right. uh, that's a, you know, it's a powerful incentive. And if you don't move in rhythm, you end up with a pretty hard ore handle in your back. And so you <laughs> are uh, compelled to experience this quickly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, tell us about the origins of hydro. You, you've alluded to that and. You know you've been doing this for coming up on six years now i guess and you know what was the inspiration were you were you unhappy with you know some of the training equipment out there you you mentioned kind of trying to bring the full water experience to the home and i've you know i i grew up on concept ones and still have one i think or two that that have been around a while have not yet used hydro can't can't wait for the opportunity to do it i've seen them before but is it um you know trying to bring another experience is it is it a better workout uh, do you feel like it kind of creates that mind body you know water experience tell us just a little bit about your
1: the inspiration yeah. in, in the company. so i think there's been like a growing recognition that rowing machines are the best exercise and mm-hmm. so concept two is founded by uh peter and dick dressigacker and judy greer in the 80s mm-hmm. water rower same thing founded in the 80s um, they kind of grew incrementally they were like little companies in rhode island and vermont Um, And then uh, CrossFit came along and uh, all of a sudden Concept2 got like really big. And so CrossFit was founded in 2001 and they started promoting rowing as the best exercise. And Mm. people on the inside knew, but it wasn't like widely recognized. I think that rowing was the best exercise. And then same thing, you know, Orange Theory, uh, when Orange Theory launched in 2010, pretty sophisticated group of people who were launching this studio experience and they could choose any exercise they wanted and they chose rowing as one of the modalities, one of the three modalities that they use. So I think there, you know, there are people out there who are promoting rowing as the best exercise. The biggest thing that I was worried about is that these rowing machines didn't connect people to what this sport is about, that mm-hmm. feeling of rhythm and human connection and connection to the water. And so we started experimenting. I worked at Community Rowing, which is a, a rowing club here in Boston. It's yeah. I think it's the largest rowing club in the world. And uh, it's a nonprofit, and it, it has a bunch of service-based programs that um, are aimed at helping people feel better, whether you're a, you know, a vet recovering from invisible injuries or you have some physical challenges. We, we will get you out on the water at CRI. So I had this uh, group of people, and we'd spent 10 years really trying to make rowing genuinely accessible, I was really worried that rowing machines were going to take over. They are inevitably going to take over from bikes because there's just better exercise, but they weren't going to be connected to the thing that makes rowing really great, which is that feeling of rhythm and that experience of water. And obviously we can't get every single person in the world out on a river, you know, at the same time, uh, there are a lot of logistical challenges to that, but we can use new technology which really was not available until like 2015 or 2016 to digitize a substantial portion of that experience of rhythm and splash and sweat and put that into somebody's living room and mm-hmm. so we really wanted to connect rowing machines to the sport of rowing and i think you know so far that like the response has been so compelling from our mm-hmm. members they really do experience. You know, it's not the full thing, but it is a significant percentage of what rowing feels like. And I'm so excited that it works. And it's only, you know, we're in the early innings. Um, As that digitization continues to improve, we see a really, really bright future to continue to connect people to the parts of the sport that make it so compelling. Mm, Love it
0: and how big is the organization today offices uh, just in boston do you have other locations yeah we have
1: uh we have uh, locations here in boston and also in the united kingdom mm-hmm. and we're selling in the united states in canada and the uk looking forward to expand worldwide and uh, we have about 130 people total in the organization mm-hmm. uh, our manufacturing is in taiwan and mm-hmm. uh, we have some great uh, relationships in taiwan with really high quality contract manufacturers. And so we built two products. Uh, Most of our sales are direct to consumer, but you can also find us in Best Buy and Fabletics and a few other locations. We're also in a number of hotels. fabulous.
0: Now, a little bit about the transition, because as you mentioned, you were the executive director of Community Rowing for a number of years, operating as a nonprofit and now CEO of a for-profit organization. Was that transition difficult for
1: you? It was uh, really, really fun to, have access to capital. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, we bootstrapped, we, we really treated community rowing like a startup and we were growing, uh, you know, the first seven years that I was there, we had a higher than 25% compound annual growth rate. And uh, so it was it was a really, really fun and really exciting and dynamic organization to work in. And we grew from, you know, eight or nine employees to 50 full-time and 150 part-time coaches and really, really fun, like really engaging, but to have access to not hundreds of thousands, but millions of dollars yeah. to hire the best talent in the world mm. and to go as fast as our imagination could take us, I think, um, has been you know, just the the most interesting part of this. But ultimately, very, very similar skill sets. And honestly, running a nonprofit is a great training ground yeah. in terms of discipline um, want to be scrappy. Yeah, you really do. And yeah. Uh, I'm very grateful for that experience, and mm-hmm. um, have really, really enjoyed having uh, you know a, a real budget and, and a group of people who are just uh, literally the best in the world at what they do, and so much fun to collaborate with.
0: Are you private equity backed? Are you you know bootstrapping it yourself, amongst yeah? Companies?
1: No, we uh, uh, we have an, kind of a great um, origin story there, where I got to know um, uh, a Wall Street. Uh, you know, (laughs) the Wall Street Journal sometimes calls him a tycoon. His name is Dick Cash and he's the founding partner at One Equity Partners and he was the first investor in the company and I got to know him at Community Rowing. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was a supporter there. And then uh, our institutional backing is from L. Catterton and uh, they are tremendous investors in the space. They have two funds, private equity and a growth fund. We're part of their growth fund group and uh, they led our Series A. We were the first ever pre-revenue investment that the growth fund had made, or the, the firm actually as a whole had ever made. And we haven't looked back since. We've had uh, five series since then, each led by a different group, uh, just all of them very high quality. And I've, I've learned a ton working with uh, some really good investors, especially you know, as the world has become a lot bumpier. Right. I so appreciate both uh, great lawyers who set us up really successfully early with uh, really clean docs and great cap table structure. And also investors who are, um, you know, incredibly good at their jobs and do, you know, they just will not fail. They um, stand by their investments because they have so much conviction and they have such a great reputation. We can do things that I know a lot of my colleagues are, uh, are unable to do right now. Mm. So really grateful for their support. Awesome. Was the pandemic good for you from
0: a sales standpoint? You know, did the you know, at home, you know, workout uh, routine, inspire uh, more people coming on board with Hydro?
1: It was, it's uh, it's a terrible thing to say about the pandemic because there was so much suffering around it. Um, And there is this cognitive dissonance there, but honestly, better lucky than good because we started just before the pandemic. Our supply line held. We were able to produce all of the machines and a few more that we had projected. And, We got this enormous turbo boost um in our early days so we were able to build a big subscriber base and that subscriber base is invaluable at this point uh you know with the world really shifting to a slower growth mode and different rules around access to growth capital uh because of the change in interest rates it's really um it positioned us to be a long-term player in the space that and again you know, we couldn't have timed our launch better as far oh, as that goes. Yeah. Are most
0: of your users at home? Uh, is it, you know, mixed with regards to university or even
1: commercial or? Yeah, you know, we're about uh, a little over 90% uh, at home. And then oh, the rest 90%. is commercial, whether it's gyms, uh, mm-hmm. hotels, uh, PT, um, you know, the really, really great development opportunities in the B2B space for us. Because mm-hmm. that's like a triple win. It builds awareness as well as sales and, uh, we love our at-home members. They, you know, they're the heart and soul of oh, our, uh, community and our organization. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 amazing.
0: How would you say your leadership style has evolved Bruce in the last five, five years, particularly?
1: I don't know that introspective part. It's always, it's hard to get a, you know, it's hard to, I, uh, my view of my leadership style. I, I hope that, um, I meddle less, and am able to serve better. I, I really view my job as getting people the tools they need to get their job done. And if I can do that, then um, we're all gonna do great. And I know so little <laughs> about the, you know, like I can't write a line of code, um, I can't operate a camera. Um, you know, there are so many things that Um, I don't know that people in the organization are the best in the world at. So my job really is to collect resources and make sure that we have a clear North star. And I hope that I'm better at articulating what that North star is for our company so that we never break our promise to our consumers, which is, you know, the hydro high. We will guarantee that you will feel better if you use your hydro, even just five minutes a day. And Mm -hmm. as long as we guarantee that North star and we never break our promise to our consumers, I think we can, Really thrive as a company. Yeah, building a company culture is you know so important,
0: and and as a founder and CEO, you know that. What, what would you see as you know unusual or perhaps unique about the uh, hydroculture?
1: I was uh, I was super lucky. Uh, the first employee that I hired is named Chris Paul. I actually I just had breakfast with him this morning. He's not with the company anymore, but he was our chief technology officer, and he insisted. Uh, he he met me. He interviewed me like multiple times. He was like, I'm you know. I asked him for advice on finding a CTO and he finally said, actually, I'll take the job. And he said, my only condition, A, I need to get paid uh, market rate. which uh, was painful. It's very expensive. And B, you need to get an executive coach. Um, and so I, I, he introduced me to one um, and my executive coach, Bob Braden said, uh, okay, you know, we worked together for a few months. It's now time to, um, get super crisp on what your company culture is. And I have an exercise that we can do. Um, and I've done it many times before he has a PhD in, in, uh, business administration. And he, he ran a really simple exercise. And basically I articulated what I thought our company culture could be, or what we wanted it to be. And then I stepped out of it and a group of our employees built, uh, our statement around com- company culture, and it's Please. you know inclusive and nimble with purpose and resilient teammates and authentic. So authentic and inclusive, um, and it's the ability to articulate those six words together. Um, and it's not what I said; sure. <laughs> it was you know rhymes with what I was hoping for. But I think leaning into that articulation, and then the most important step, which you know bob was religious with and i think everybody at hydro at least understands um everybody holds everybody else accountable mm. for that culture yeah. and that has held for us through thick and thin and um i believe that that's the most important thing that we've done you know it's it because that that operating system those six words everybody at least, you know, recognizes them. And most people I think could say them under duress That's <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, and, um, and they're true. And if they're not true, then somebody says like, Hey, Bruce, you're not, you know, you're not being inclusive or you're not being authentic. Like this doesn't feel right to us. Right. And everybody in the, in the company has, um, full authority to throw down a card and say like, Hey, we're not, we're not respecting this value. Yeah. And it's not, it's far from perfect, but I think that that, um, that process was absolutely foundational in setting us up for long-term success. Mm. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire at
0: Hydropers? Uh,
1: curiosity, mm. humility, um, the ability to work hard. And after that, I think everything pretty much takes care of itself. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite interview question
0: that you ask or you know, kind of try to get at some of those points.
1: You know, it just, it changes so much, like depending on the people, some people like, um, you know, if they're coming from a big company environment, then it, it takes a couple of minutes to peel back the layers and try and figure out what the, you know, um, what their experience has been and, and how, um, how they might approach, uh, actually having to, you know, operate in a much smaller company, um, with people who are just coming up or just out of school, it's much more conversation about how they, um, how they view work and if they, you know, do they really like, do they love work or, or is it something that they're doing, you know, because they have to. And we try really, really hard to find people who love trying to create what we call the most beautiful human experience. That's our, Mm -hmm. you know, our, our internal long-term goal. Like we want to create that most beautiful human experience. And if people are really jazzed by that and they're curious and humble, then, um, it's, it's not easy. To figure that out in an interview, and honestly, um, I think I'm batting somewhere around six or seven hundred, which I'm very pleased with uh, in terms of interviewing. But I've definitely made some colossal uh, blunders in terms of hiring the wrong people too, and um, it's it's really hard to figure out in that interview process how you know how people really are, and it takes two or three months to get that sorted out.
0: Uh, Bruce, you've been super generous with your time, and we're almost out of it here. But we always have one last question we ask all our guests, and that's: What kind of life and you know career advice would you give someone that perhaps you know wants to be a founder someday? Maybe looks through their own corner office and you know wants to build a company from scratch, as you've done.
1: Honestly, my best advice is find the thing that you really, really love and ignore money. <laughs> Um, it's counterintuitive because everybody needs money to live and I know that it's required and maybe money's your thing maybe that's what you really love but um, ignore money find something you love and it is amazing what can happen after that
0: yeah fantastic advice well Bruce Smith founder and CEO of Hydro thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office